Good evening. This is Ryan Underwood in the studio with From the Front Line. Tonight we are going to evaluate the recent elections in Zimbabwe and its implications. We are joined in the studio by Dr. Peter Hammond. Welcome, Dr. Hammond. Thank you, Ryan. The long-suffering people of Zimbabwe have endured yet another charade of free and fair elections. Many hopes have been shattered by the cruel results. What actually happened? Well, uh, interestingly enough, uh, this was effectively three elections in one. Everyone got three votes. They were to elect one president, uh, some legislators, and then councillors. So what was at stake was one presidential seat, 1,770 council seats, and 210 parliamentary seats. And they're all being elected for a five-year period. America's four-year election cycles we have in Zimbabwe and South Africa, five-year cycles. So according to the Zimbabwe Broadcasting Corporation, there were five voting wards in Manikaland, a province that didn't manage to cast any votes at all because of what they call logistical difficulties, which meant no ballot papers arrived. So there were whole, whole wards where they never even got the chance to vote at all. And in addition to that, there were 35 other uh, wards where votes were delayed because of late arrival of ballot papers, some of which arrived 10 hours or 12 hours late. And so, according to Zimbabwe electoral law, uh, all elections must be made in one day. And uh, yet here they had to drag it out to a second day, so it was the 23rd and extended 24th of August for the elections because... In some cases, the ballots only arrived the next day. There were people waiting in line all day, all night, until the next morning to be able to vote. And uh, But unbelievably, some people endured that. They actually stood for that long. Now, most of these delays and problems were in areas traditionally uh, opposition strongholds, like Harare, Bulawayo, and Madibiland. So the places where the people were in opposition to the government had the most logistical difficulties and waited the longest to get ballots or never got ballots at all. So that's what you would call a bit of a farce. Interestingly enough, the Commonwealth Electoral Observer Committee called it a basically free and fair election, which SADC, the South African Development Corporation, which is basically the Southern African Development Community, that's all the Southern African countries, their electoral observers said it was far below um, standards in accordance with the Zimbabwe Election uh, Commission or Constitution or that of the EU. So interestingly, um, you've got one group, the Commonwealth, saying free and fair elections and the other electoral observers from SADC saying in no way was it free and fair. So one wonders where the Commonwealth observers went. Maybe they saw a different election somewhere. And uh, intriguingly, uh, there were, in the run-up to the elections, There were 41 poll observers or monitors who were arrested. Um, Now, these are independent poll observers, which you'd think any free and fair election has to have. They got arrested. All foreign journalists were banned, and there were no um, opposition journalists allowed to attend um, or go into the ballot areas and observe what was going on in the voting areas. Not only that, but in the run-up to the election, the... um, opposition party, which is the CCC, or the um, Citizens Coalition for Change, and uh, they were prohibited from having rallies in the run-up foot, and at no time did the opposition parties receive 
the ballots, or I should say the electoral, um, the electoral list. So they never learned, they never got the list of who's actually eligible to vote. So there's a lot of irregularities, to put it nicely. On the positive side, nobody was murdered, which makes a change, because last year uh, the government forces shot uh, opposition members and there were there was violence on the electoral days and, and protests afterwards. But for the first time in many years, nobody was killed during the election process as far as we've heard so far. There was a lot of intimidation. There was a lot of threats. Um, but, of course, they didn't have to actually do much uh, violence considering how the people know the government has murdered a lot of people over the years. In the 2008 elections, they broke people's arms and legs for voting for the opposition. They murdered people, bayoneted people, and so on. So a government that came to power by burning people alive in congregations and uh, herding people to churches, burning it down around them, blowing up entire buses full of opposition supporters, murdering opposition candidates, you can imagine they don't need to do that every time, they just need to threaten, and that's, that carries quite a lot of force. The government has a complete monopoly of the media, so all the radio, TV, and newspapers in Zimbabwe are controlled by the government. So they control the media completely. They also control the electoral process. Remember what Joseph Stalin said, it's not who votes that counts, it's who counts the votes. And that's a Joseph Stalin quote. And the head of military intelligence oversees the uh, voting counting. Not only that, but the woman who's the spokesperson for Zimbabwe Electoral Commission happens to be a girlfriend or mistress of Manangagwa and apparently has a child by him. And so I don't know if there's any conflict of interest there, but uh, that's the observer or the independent Zimbabwe Electoral Commission spokesperson. So according to um, the main leader of the opposition, um, Nelson Chamisa, he said it was one big, blatant, gigantic fraud. Um, and uh, he, he said that the entire operation was, was uh, rigged and stolen. He described it as a coup. Manangagwa came to power through a coup, and he's staying in power through a coup. He has stolen these elections. So, interestingly, um, there's a lot of election denial going on in Zimbabwe, but gladly they are more free in, in freedom of speech in Zimbabwe than they are in the United States of America. Nobody gets arrested in Zimbabwe for questioning the election results or denying the election results, or just what everyone would be, because just about the entire country accuses the government of election fraud. So... Uh, fortunately, there's more freedom of speech and respect for people's opinions in Zimbabwe than there is in Biden's America because everyone is able to openly say this was a stolen election, it's a fraudulent election, this government's a stolen election, it's a coup d'etat, it's a gigantic fraud, and nobody's gotten arrested for saying that. That seems to be pretty par for the course. How long has this ZANU-PF government been in power in Zimbabwe? 43 years, unbelievably, since 1980. How did ZANU-PF attain power in Zimbabwe? Well, they waged a war for years. ZANU-PF was trained by Red China, so Mao Zedong's China trained them, armed them, and they were a Maoist bunch of terrorists. In fact, there's a picture of Robert Mugabe, who was their president for many, many decades, in a sort of Chinese-looking pajama suit, uh, which, um, where they're all wearing that sort of thing. That was apparently his graduating class photograph. You can see he's one of a whole lot all dressed in the same kind of Chinese pajama suits. In fact, he showed this picture around at one time in the year 2000 when he was storming the um, 
farms and seeing the farms under what they called land reform, he said, you have degrees in agriculture. I have a degree in violence. And that was his, well, he was trained how to murder people by the Red Chinese who are the Guinness Book of Record past masters. They've murdered more people than anyone else. I think Mao Zedong gets the world record, Guinness World record, Book of Records award for being the biggest mass murderer in history, even more than Joseph Stalin. He murdered 68 million. Joseph Stalin only murdered 66 million. So uh, Stalin was number two uh, in that. I think that may surprise many people because Hollywood doesn't give much attention to these real mass murderers. So yes, he has a degree in violence. And so they got to power by being a bunch of terrorists. They planted landmines. They murdered people. They massacred missionaries, uh, bayoneted Catholic missionaries, raped nuns murdered Protestant missionaries like at Ila Mission Station. Um, they wiped out vast numbers of churches, herding people to congregations and burning the church down around them. So they were terrorists, so they had no chance of getting power because the Rhodesian army beat them in battle, but they were able to terrorize the civilians. So under um, the British Sec Foreign Secretary, Lord Carrington, Carrington organized the Lancaster House Agreement. The Lancaster House Agreement was where the British government got all the Rhodesian forces and parties together, including Ian Smith and Abel Mozarero, who at that stage was the Prime Minister of Zimbabwe, Rhodesia, uh, the first one-man, one-vote elections. But because he's a moderate, not a Marxist, that wasn't good enough. So they now forced him to sit down with the Maoist Zanu PF and the Stalinist uh, Zapu. So you had Zanu, Zapu, Joshin Koma's group was Zanpu. They were the Russian backed. You had the Maoist, uh, Robert Mugabe's group, Zanu. And then you had uh, all these other groups of Mozarewa, Satoli, Ian Smith's uh, Rhodesia Front, all went to Lancaster House. And the British under Lord Carrington, who later proved to be an agent of influence of the KGB when the Soviet Union fell and the papers came out, turned out that he was working for the other side. He was once General Secretary of NATO too. He's a British Foreign Office man who brought about the betrayal of Rhodesia. So Carrington managed to convince everyone that he's on their side in private negotiations. And he, he lied to Ian Smith and everyone, Mozarewa. And they made an agreement on the kind of free and fair elections that needed to be taking place. And according to Lancaster's agreement in 1980, actually 1979, but implemented in 1980, all military forces, all combatants had to be confined to barracks. The terrorists were confined to camps that the British army would monitor. The Rhodesian army would be returned to barracks. And the British police and British army would monitor the countryside and handle everything. Of course, the British police and army didn't know the countryside, didn't know Sean or Indebelli, uh, were out of their depth, frankly. Uh, so they weren't capable of doing the kind of efficient job the Rhodesian army and police were doing. But nevertheless, this was to ensure free and fair elections without intimidation. And they put Lord Christopher Soames, who was... Winston Churchill's son-in-law in as the governor. Now, as governor, he was obligated to disqualify any political party that engaged in intimidation, which is another word for terrorism, murder, and all the rest. And so uh, he was in a position where he was obligated in terms of this international agreement by law to disqualify any party that broke the terms of Lancaster's agreement, including discounting any votes that were obtained through intimidation and terrorism. Well, when... The evidence came out that Zanu PF was the only group that was not confined to barracks. They were out there murdering, blowing up entire buses of supporters of the other side, murdering opposition candidates, terrorizing people, bayoneting people, shooting people in the townships, in the 
rural areas, tribal trust lands. Um, Lord Soames had all the details, and not from the Rhodesians. Even the British police and British Army were informing him of these uh, pattern of atrocities done by Robert Mugabe's Zanu PF. And he admits in a BBC documentary, which I've seen, uh, Rhodesia, End of Empire, and um, he said, you know, it's, it's elections in Africa are an uh, ugly thing. And he said, but, you know, this is Africa and it's not puddles in a marsh. And, uh, and that's literally, he justified the fact that he violated the Lancaster House Agreement, his sworn duty. He knew that he should have disqualified Mugabe and their elections from all areas they engaged in terrorism, which was most of the places, which would have meant that Mugabe wouldn't have won the election and could have spared Zimbabwe a lot of grief, but typical treacherous, backstabbing Churchillite um, Lord Christopher Soames uh, just handed over to Mugabe, uh, even though he had sworn blind that he had never allowed this to take place and he would uphold the Lancaster Agreement to a sacred duty and all the rest of it. So lying, treacherous uh, Albion. And the, um, the local people were absolutely horrified and all the other candidates as well because it was known Mugabe broke all the rules. What do you think of an Olympic race where one person can run across the field, uh, cripple a few of the other athletes, um, shoot a couple of others, stab some others, trip others up, you know, bludgeon others over the head and still stand on the podium, get the gold medal and, you know, the winner. What would you think of referees who allow that? And he was the referee and he did not disqualify the one that was blatantly breaking all the rules. So Mugabe got to power through terrorism, intimidation, and breaking solemn agreement. But remember what Vladimir Lenin said. Vladimir Lenin said, treaties are like pie crusts, made to be broken. To tell the truth is a petty bourgeois habit, but to lie and to lie convincingly is a sign of superior intelligence. And so how can you make agreements with Marxists who think lying is an art form to be perfected? And not only that, but bear in mind that, uh, as Stalin said, it doesn't matter who votes, who votes doesn't count, it's who counts the votes. So what the British Foreign Office and the American State Department taught Mugabe, Zanu, PF, and all other African parties at that time is, it doesn't matter how many laws you break, it doesn't matter how many people you murder, it doesn't matter how many legs you break and how many arms you break, it doesn't matter how much you violate all law and decency. As long as you win the election, we will recognize you, you'll have an honored place at the United Nations and at the African Union and the Commonwealth, and we will give you foreign aid by the millions. So Mugabe learned the lesson, and he stuck to it thereafter. It doesn't matter how much you violate law and how many people you kill, as long as you win the elections, technically. Nobody cares about the justice and the truth of it all. As long as you can say we won the elections by such and such a margin, uh, we will give you hundreds of millions of dollars in foreign aid. And that's what happened. So Mugabe learned his lesson well, it doesn't matter what you do as long as you have your elections. What was Rhodesia like before its betrayal? Well, it was actually a paradise. Now, I was brought up in Rhodesia. My elder sister was born in Salisbury. I was actually born in Cape Town because my parents were pickpocketed coming through Cape Town on the way back from Europe on a visit on board ship. So they were stranded in Cape Town for a while. And so I was the only member of my family born in Cape Town, um, although all my children have been born in Cape Town since. But I was raised in Rhodesia where... It was a paradise. And we're talking about everything was neat, clean, efficient, beautiful, well-run. Uh, the schools started every day with Bible reading, hymn singing, and prayer. Uh, we were disciplined. The schools were not only neat and efficient. The hospitals were actually a delight. The one time I ended up in hospital for kidney failure, 
uh, kidney stones. It was actually enjoyable because the nurses were so efficient, so jovial to such a lovely atmosphere, even these wards of 20 beds. And the schools, I mean, just high standards. Uh, in Rhodesia, we were so free. Uh, I could, as a young boy, put on my water bottle, my uh, sheath knife and bush hat and go out at age 12, walking out of the city limits. And I walked 12 miles out of the city limits to go to Kami Ruins, which is quite a distance you can see on a map. But I walked to Kami Ruins one Saturday morning and my parents didn't know I was doing it. As long as I was back by time sunset, no problem. And now we were meant to be a country at war. And there I was, a 12-year-old boy on my own, walking past wildebeest, buffalo, giraffes, zebra, all kinds of wild animals, guinea fowl and so on. And this wasn't in a game reserve. This was just outside the city limits. I was safer in a time of war in Rhodesia than you are in peacetime now in Cape Town or Johannesburg in a place of peace. And the country was well run. Now, we did have war, so it was not unusual to see mothers pushing a pram or a trolley in a supermarket with a 9mm row gun submachine gun over their shoulder or a pistol or revolver holstered on the hip. It wasn't unusual to see school teachers carrying R1 rifles or FN rifles uh, in the school bus on a school outing. We went on roads endangered by landmines, it's true, and we went in areas where ambushes could take place, and when we visited the farms, we were taught you can't switch on the light without first closing the curtains. You don't open the front door without first switching off the light. You mustn't frame yourself against the light in case of a terrorist taking a pot shot. So we were brought up with weapons and alertness, the police and the army came to our schools, taught us everything from shooting to drilling. We had cadets and so on. Uh, two two rifles were part of our school equipment. We would do school shooting practice. And we'd even have bush training courses where we were taken to bush for a week in bush school and put in the care of a game ranger who taught us tracking, anti-tracking, bush survival, um, how to be able to make fire even in rain, how to managed to find water, get shelter. So, you know, all the bush survival things required, and that was part of our schooling. And I must say, it was an incredible experience. So just to show you what kind of country we had, one day I heard from my father that Ian Douglas Smith, the Prime Minister, was going to visit the Bulaway Club, where my father, my father ran the Bulaway Club. And so I'm standing on the road expecting to see something impressive. You know, I don't know what is in my mind, maybe some kind of entourage or like Buckingham Palace, um, Changing of God or something. And down the road comes a beat-up old Peugeot 404, old white Peugeot 404 car. It stops, out gets the Prime Minister. And I know it's the Prime Minister. I've seen his picture many a time. And uh, But there's no aide-de-camp. There's no bodyguard. There's no chauffeur, no driver. There's not a police car, not a motorbike outrider, not a policeman anywhere in sight. Ian Smith walks up to me, strokes my cat, Tim, who's sitting on a wall, smiles at me, walks up the stairs, goes to the Bullway Club. And I'm looking around... Where's the police? Where's the security? And I mentioned this to Ian Smith when I saw him later in the last 20 years of his life. I met with him many a time for radio and TV and interviews. Uh, we had breakfast, lunch, suppers together, prayed together, read the Bible together. And uh, uh, I brought this up to Ian Smith and he said, oh, I couldn't be bothered with all these people fussing around me. I survived the Second World War. What did I have to fear? So I've been a lifelong Presbyterian. I fear God. And so he said he often broke the laws of his own government. He would not travel in convoy. You had to travel by convoy to go on open roads. Down to his farm at Saluque near Grillo. He had just gone on his own because um, he couldn't be bothered waiting for the convoy. 
So he broke his own laws regularly. Uh, he said he often chased the policemen away from the gates, the cook had the kitchen. There was sometimes nobody in the prime minister's residence, independence, um, except his wife and him, because he says, I can't be bothered with people fussing around me. So, I mean, that's the kind of man Ian Smith was. Uh, he did not live in fear, and uh, he was a brave man. He fought in the Second World War. He f flew Spitfires and Hurricanes. He, is, he crashed in North Africa. He was shot down over northern Italy. He was five months behind enemy lines and... Um, Northern Italy during the war, uh, worked with the partisans. He was, he hiked over the Alps in only his socks because he had foolishly taken off his boots at night and couldn't get them his feet back into the next day that frozen solid. So he learned you don't ever take your boots off in the Alps. Nevertheless, uh, Ian Smith lived like that. Now, Zimbabwe in 1982 was totally different. There was Robert Mugabe had come down the road with mo eight motorbike outriders, police cars truckloads full of gooks with rocket launchers and machine guns and everyone has to stop and he's in a um, one of these Mercedes with not just armored cars but with um, tinted windows you don't know which one he's in there's a there's two vehicles so you're not sure which one he's in and everyone has to stop on both sides and that's the way Mugabe traveled all the time which we got pictures of Ian Smith cycling to work on a bicycle when he's prime minister so Rhodesia was a paradise and not only was the Rhodesian, rand str Rhodesian dollar stronger than the American dollar and the British pound, it was even stronger than the South African rand. The Rhodesian dollar was real money, and you could get a lot of good things with the Rhodesian dollar. And uh, that was real money. Not only that, but um, in Rhodesia, we, we never knew what a power failure was. We never knew what water shortages was. There was always water, always. Even when it was a drought, even when we had a serious drought, there was never a shortage of food or shortage of water, electricity, and nobody starved in Rhodesia. Rhodesia had about the lowest unemployment on the continent, virtually negligible, uh, had the lowest crime rate in the continent, the highest literacy rate, and the educational standards were extremely high. Rhodesia exported food, and uh, it was a stable country. And to think that this pro-Western country fighting for Western Christian civilization was being betrayed by its allies. My father fought all six years in the Second World War in the Royal Artillery in the Eighth Army uh, on the British side. Uh, but when we were under attack, the British Empire was sanctioning us, the British Commonwealth, I should say, was putting full sanctions on us. We couldn't take part in the Commonwealth Games. We couldn't take part in the Olympics. We weren't even allowed to take part in the Paraplegics Olympics. I mean, how petty and spiteful is that? So Rhodesia was a country that, as Ian Smith said, we were never beaten by our enemies. We were betrayed by our friends. What is Zimbabwe like today? Like difference between night and day. It's a totally different country. Unemployment is so high in Zimbabwe, it's something like 95% unemployment, which sounds absolutely impossible. The inflation is some of the worst in the world. They reached millions of percent um, in inflation back at the height of 2008 when they had to ban the currency. After 2008, they adopted the US dollar as their basic currency. But the Zimbabwe currency, the Zimbabwe dollar, reached a stage of, I've got upstairs a $100 trillion note in our cabinet, a $100 trillion note that couldn't even buy a loaf of bread in 2008. And that's after they knocked 16 zeros off the currency. So they totally devalued the currency by making it worthless, totally worthless, so much so that you'd have signs in um, 
restaurants on, do not use Zimbabwe dollars in toilet. Literally, because people, were, it was cheaper than toilet paper. That's how bad the Zimbabwe dollar got. And $100 trillion notes worth nothing. So they had power failures. In fact, as Zimbabweans say, you in South Africa have power failures. We sometimes get electricity, which is true. So in Zimbabwe, power failure is normal. And sometimes if the, if the lights suddenly come on at, say, 2 in the morning, everyone gets up and uh, charges their phones or tries to download some internet and, and see you know, what's coming because if the lights are only on from 2 to 4 in the morning, that's when everyone's got to be up and, and making use of electricity. You don't get the electricity any other time. The, the water is so unstable that every plug is in the sink and bath and under every tap, the taps are open and there's a bucket under it because every now and then some water will trickle through. And then next morning, okay, at least you've got some water in a bath or some water in a bucket or in a sink. But so the taps will be left on the whole time um, with a plug and just waiting for some water to come through. The lights will be left on so people will be woken up in the middle of the night when the lights come on so that they can actually get something done on their electrical appliances. In Zimbabwe, they say, you know, when the president's about to make a speech because the lights suddenly come on. The lights come on because they want you to watch TV. Now the president's got a speech to make. So we get power failures in South Africa. Zimbabwe sometimes gets electricity. And uh, again, we get cuts in our water supplies in South Africa. In Zimbabwe, they occasionally get water. So it's, it's that much worse. And people have starved. In fact, more than half of the total population of Zimbabwe have fled the country. More than half the total population. I mean, imagine how bad that is. There's more Zimbabweans living outside of Zimbabwe than are living in Zimbabwe. Uh, can you think of any country in history that's been that bad? And that's people voting with their feet. So the currency is worthless. People are starving. And instead of exporting food, they now have to import food. In fact, Zimbabwe needs thousands of tons of food imported every year. They used to export thousands of tons of food and get foreign exchange for it. So much so that the white farmers that used to feed Zimbabwe and be the biggest employers and also the biggest earners of foreign exchange, their farms were stolen from them. And some of those farmers fled to Zimbabwe, to Zambia, across the border. And now some of the food being imported in Zimbabwe are grown by these old white Rhodesian farmers who were expelled from the country when their farms were stolen. And the people who've noticed the name of the same farmer that they kicked out of the area is on the name of this sack of corn that's coming in now. It's being imported by the World Food Program, bought from Zambia, imported. And so isn't it intriguing? I, when I met uh, President Levi Mwanawasa of Zambia, I congratulated him because Zambia just strengthened its currency, the kwacha, against the American dollar for the first time since independence. And he said, oh, don't thank me. Thank Robert Mugabe. And I said, Robert Mugabe? He said, yes. All those white farmers he kicked out. He said, I invited hundreds of them here, gave them farms, guaranteed them loans, welcomed them, said, let Zambia be your home. And he said, they have enabled Zambia to feed itself, export food, to strengthen our foreign exchange, and now we've been able to strengthen our money. So he said, it's thanks to Mugabe throwing away um, the farmers that we have welcomed that Zambia has been able to achieve food self-sufficiency and uh, strengthen our economy. So that just shows it's a tale of two countries. Zimbabwe and Rhodesia are two totally different countries. What is China's connection to Zimbabwe? Well, first and foremost, Red China trained Robert Mugabe and ZANU-PF, ZANU-PF and armed them. So China was a sponsoring agent of the terrorist group that now is the criminal cabal that's running Zimbabwe. But secondly, Zimbabwe's got not just markets, but a lot of raw materials. Zimbabwe has a lot of gold, a lot of platinum, and some of the biggest 
lithium reserves on the planet. And as you know, Red China is trying to lead the world in uh, green energy. Of course, they do far more damage to the environment through the so-called green energy, whether you're talking about the wind turbines, which kill how many birds, um, especially endangered birds, but uh, the solar panels and these batteries. And for the batteries, they need lots of lithium. And that comes from Zimbabwe. So Zimbabwe is the biggest lithium reserves in the world. So China is there ripping out, raping the economy of its minerals. The world's largest diamond fields in the world are now found in um, Mareng in southeastern Zimbabwe. And they've got a massive airfield there. And the biggest aircraft in the world, the Antonov 126, takes off from there and goes direct to China with diamonds. This is an aircraft where you can drive tanks in the back or, or hold trucks. It's, it's a ramp-type access aircraft. And literally, they're flying diamonds from Zimbabwe straight to China, not going through customs, not going through Rari, not processing or being cut anywhere else. They go straight to China. China is looting the country. And what Zimbabwe gets in exchange as well, Chinese fighter jets, tanks, military weapons to oppress their people. And they'll build Mugabe, some state-of-the-art palace or whatever he wants. But uh, the people of Zimbabwe are not being benefited by these minerals. So Red China is there to rape the country, to rip the country off. And when the Chinese merchants were coming in, they found themselves being competed with by these salesmen working off the streets, these entrepreneurs. And so back in 2005, China complained about all these informal traders, as they call them. And so Mugabe just mobilized the army to destroy the homes and the shacks and the impromptu side of the road stalls of about a million and a half people in their depends. And in the middle of winter, which was the coldest time of the year, uh, June, July, they came through, they destroyed the homes of one and a half million people. These were the main opposition, or should we say competition, to the Chinese merchants. The Chinese came in and they made Chinese a required language, at uh, a must subject at uh, University of Zimbabwe. So University of Zimbabwe, the Chinese was non-negotiable. It was a compulsory subject. And when the university students complained, Mugabe shut down the university for a year, closed the university in Mugabe for a whole year. And then later they start again and students, you've got to learn Chinese as well. So China has come in and they've just sort of taken over Zimbabwe like their own colony. And people laugh about this, that Mugabe said that in the pens, never, never, never again will Zimbabwe ever be colonized. And next thing, yellow, along come the Chinese businessmen, they've moved in and they've taken over and China is very much in charge and Zimbabwe is very much the little puppet and the people that we are having things ripped off. I should also add Blood Diamonds. Now people know about Blood Diamonds if you've seen the film Blood Diamonds which is a well-made film and that's focused on West Africa particularly Liberia and Sierra Leone where these Blood Diamond terrorists were chopping off people's hands and forcing them as slave labor to work to get these diamonds and then strip searching and making sure they couldn't smuggle out the diamonds and these these um, military um, cabals, criminal gangs were controlling the diamonds. Well, blood diamonds got banned uh, internationally as depicted at the end of the blood diamonds film with what's called the Kimberley Protocol. The Kimberley Protocol, unfortunately, its definition of a blood diamond is something made by a rebel group, mined by a rebel group. And by their definition, Zimbabwe's diamonds are not blood diamonds. Even though Mugabe's presidential god 
controls the area of Marang Diamond Fields where it takes place. And they have chopped people's hands off and they've brought in helicopter gunships, hand helicopter gunships, and machine gunned um, the entrepreneurs, the, the independent miners. Um, and they've enslaved people to work in their mines, literally working like slaves. By definition, they're not blood diamonds according to the Kimberley Protocol because it's run by a government that's recognized by the United Nations and the Organization of African Unity. So Mugabe is running the biggest amounts of blood diamonds in the world, which is people don't benefit from, but they're not called blood diamonds because according to Kimberley Protocol, he is a legitimate government. After all, he did win elections. Okay, by fraud and terrorism and violence and murder, but nevertheless, he did win the elections, which is all that matters, apparently. And so... Yes, Zimbabwe today is a blood diamond terrorist state. It's run by a bunch of communist criminals and the people are starving and the people are fleeing and the people are unemployed and the money is worthless. So the situation is terrible. When you travel to Zimbabwe, you sometimes see the petrol stations. They've got the sign, today's special. And under that written is no fuel. So that's often today's special. And you can get long queues of people queuing up for food, long queues of people queuing up for access to a bank teller to get a bit of money out, which is still not worth much. By the time you rush to the store, the money's been devalued even more. So, you know, it's queues for petrol, queues for almost anything, queues to fill up with water at the one pe water pump in the middle of, of a village. So the situation is very dire in Zimbabwe, and of course there's a lot of fear because it's a one-party dictatorship and people get beaten up and killed and disappear if they get on the wrong side of the government. So that's Zimbabwe today. What is the United States federal government's involvement in Zimbabwe? Well, aside from the fact that Kissinger helped negotiate the betrayal of Rhodesia, and when Kissinger um, first talked Rhodesia into one man, one vote, he promised the Rhodesian people, eyeball to eyeball, on TV, looking straight into the camera, United States of America will guarantee your farms, the rule of law, your property will be secure, and there'll be no need for you to leave, but if you will want, do want to leave, the United States of America will guarantee you um, moving to any place in the world in a farm of equivalent size, and uh, we will buy you, we'll pay for all your transportation fees, your moving home if you need, but we will guarantee you no loss of property or standard of living here if you stay in, 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 Rhodesia, in Zimbabwe, Rhodesia. So, of course, the U.S. government betrayed Rhodesia for sure. But since then, U.S. government has been giving hundreds of millions of dollars every year to Zimbabwe. Now, people say, but America's putting sanctions on Zimbabwe. Not true. America's put sanctions on some individuals in the ZANU-PF party hierarchy. But they give hundreds of millions of dollars to Zimbabwe every year. So far from sanctions, they're actually helping to fund the corrupt government in Zimbabwe, who takes, you can imagine, the lion's share of any aid, so-called aid. So Zimbabwe is helping to, uh, United States of America under Biden is helping to subsidize Manangagwa's ZANU-PF uh, dictatorship of Zimbabwe. Why are the people of Zimbabwe continuing to be subjected to such oppression? Well, on the one side, you could say it's, it's betrayal, but I think it's more than that. And friends of mine have agreed with me that the problem is that God's actually judging the people of Zimbabwe. Bear in mind, the people of Zimbabwe were involved in a lot of witchcraft over the years. Much witchcraft, and even to this day, there's many people involved in polygamy, witchcraft, drunkenness, human sacrifices for witchcraft, muti murders, uh, taking little children and selling their body parts for, for witchcraft. So there's a lot of witchcraft, and then there's communism. 
And even though there was a lot of intimidation fraud, nevertheless, many people in Zimbabwe did vote for the Communist Party. And they didn't mind when the government invaded farms and stole the white people's farms because, yeah, it's white people, so it doesn't matter. They also didn't seem to mind that much when the Matabili were being murdered because the Matabili are the minority tribe. And so I believe that what's going on in Zimbabwe is we've also got to look at in the light of Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 that God is judging the nation, that there are blessings of obedience and there's curse of disobedience. If you go through Deuteronomy 28, it looks like Zimbabwe is suffering all the curse of disobedience from droughts and famine and evil government oppression. All of these things are some of the judgments that God threatens on countries, nations that will disobey him. So I do believe it's not just that the people in Zimbabwe are victims of an evil government. Of course they are. But also that they may be suffering the consequences of bad choices and compromise and sinfulness. And that many of the people in Zimbabwe have not submitted to Christ. You've also got a lot of cults in Zimbabwe. There are name it, claim it and frame it, gab it and grab it, prosperity cults, um, type of health and wealth gospel messages there that's very popular. And you can't expect God to bless that kind of false gospel, which is all materialistic and selfish. So as a missionary to Zimbabwe, who spent a lot of time going in Zimbabwe, I am convinced that the reason why the people are suffering in Zimbabwe is not just because of deception, betrayal, and wicked, tyrannical governments, but a logical consequence of God's judgment on a sinful people who have not humbled themselves and prayed and repented and turned from their wicked ways. And therefore, if you're not seeking God's face, you've got to expect this sort of thing. So it's, it's sad, but it's I don't believe there's a political solution for Zimbabwe. There's a spiritual solution that begins with repentance. What hope is there for the future in Zimbabwe? There must be hope for the future because there are many Christians in Zimbabwe and there's been some good work done from days of David Livingston, Robert Moffat. Good missionary work's been done in Zimbabwe. The gospel seed's been sown. Many martyrs have died. Many missionaries died for Christ in Zimbabwe. And therefore, we must expect the blood of the martyrs to be seed the church. We've got to expect good fruit to flow from the excellent seed sowing that's been done in Zimbabwe over the years. Uh, our mission itself has distributed many thousands of Bibles and Christian books in Shona and Dabeli in English around Zimbabwe, many World Missionary Press Gospel booklets. We've done Jesus Form showings and Biblical Worldview seminars in Zimbabwe. We've tried to invest in people's lives. We've sponsored Zimbabweans coming out to South Africa to go through our Great Commission course and send them back. And we believe that there's a core, a remnant in Zimbabwe who are faithful to the Lord, and hopefully they can have a good spiritual impact. So the hope for the future is that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ the Lord, the glory of God the Father. The day will come when earth will be as full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the seas are full of water now. Our hope for the future is that infallibly God's word will produce a harvest, and inevitably the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So we have hope for the future. We must keep praying against this wicked, evil government. We must pray the imprecatory psalms, pray the psalms of justice that God would judge the wicked and remove this evil, corrupt government, and that God would also deal with those wicked governments in the West that are financing and enabling Mugabe's Zanu to continue to oppress the people. The betrayal by the British Foreign Office and the US State Department, by the Commonwealth and by the EU, uh, are all serious, and God will deal with these people. There are consequences, and what we sow, we will reap, whether good or bad. And that is some of the hope that I see for Zimbabwe, is the ongoing work of gospel ministry, because it's not a political solution we are trusting in, but a spiritual solution. 
And when the people of Zimbabwe humble themselves, pray, seek God's face in terms of their wicked ways, then we can expect God to hear from heaven to forgive their sin and to heal their land. How can we best pray for and minister in Zimbabwe? And how can we best serve the Christians in this beleaguered nation? Well, as a mission to persecute churches, this has been concerning Frontline Fellowship for the last over 40 years. And we've been ministering in Zimbabwe for over 40 years. I've done many missions in Zimbabwe. And uh, we continue to pray for the people in Zimbabwe to take in boxes with love to help pensioners and prisoners and pastors to seek to bless the people and to get them Bibles. We sponsored the first commentary in the Shauna language, which was on the Book of Acts. We've done a lot of practical work to try and help the Christians in Zimbabwe, especially leadership training. I think the most important needs they've got is our Bibles and Bible teaching. They need the Word of God and need the Word of God taught. So investing in leadership training and literature is key. And praying, I'd say we need to pray the Psalms. Take the Psalms, especially the Psalms of Justice, and pray the Psalms, applying the Psalms to Zimbabwe. Praying for God to judge the wicked, to break the arm of the wicked and evil man, that he might do his evil no more. To break the teeth in their mouth, to to expose them, to cause the wicked to fall into traps, the pits they've dug for others. To have them condemn themselves with the words of their own mouth. We must pray the Psalms of Justice for God to free the people of Zimbabwe and also to bring the people of Zimbabwe to repentance. You would think that after all these sufferings, they'd be brought to repentance. Unfortunately, speaking to the average person in Zimbabwe, you'll see just on some TV interviews, what did you think of the recent elections? Well, of course, okay, then at police state, it's very hard for them to answer honestly. So you get people saying, well, you know, we support Mangagwa. He's the hope for our country, and we're grateful for our government and for free elections. And so the average person in the street being interviewed by CNN or BBC is giving the kind of answers that you'd expect when you're in a communist dictatorship where, you know, you can lose your life for saying, speaking your mind. But what the people in Zimbabwe need to do is to get to the point of, like Joseph, uh, like Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, the lie is the pill of the state. And the best thing we can do to bring down the totalitarian state is stop believing the lie, stop repeating the lie, stop applauding the lie. And ultimately, when you stop applauding and uh, repeating the lie, the state will collapse because it's built on a pillar of lies. So praying the Psalms, investing in literature and leadership training, they need Bibles, they need Bible teaching. How can our hearers learn more about the Ministry of Frontline Fellowship and how can they get in contact with you? Please uh, visit www.frontlinemissionsa.org. Frontline Mission SA, short for South Africa. Frontline Mission SA.org is our main website. You'll see a lot of articles. You can look specifically back. We've got a whole section of country reports on Zimbabwe alone. And you will also see audiovisuals dealing with Zimbabwe on both sermon audio and our Vimeo page. If you want to get any books on our mission, uh, you can go to Frontline Mission NA, short for North America, Frontline Mission NA.org, and you'll see we've got a bookshop available for North America and Europe with books like Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ, which has quite a number of chapters on Zimbabwe. Also, it starts off with Rhodesia, so the Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ book, which is also available as an ebook and as a print on demand, gives you a lot of insights about Zimbabwe and what Rhodesia was like before and the whole story of, of ministry behind the lines there. And you go onto our website, frontlinemissionsa.org. You'll get many more things, to, including on the prayer posters, a prayer post for Pray for Zimbabwe that you could print out and put up at your church. We should also remind people that coming up at the, towards the end of this year, the second Sunday in November is International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted, and we should be praying for the persecuted worldwide, including in Zimbabwe. And 
we've got prayer posters and articles on Zimbabwe news items on IDOP, short for International Day of Prayer, IDOP-Africa.org, IDOP-Africa.org website. You'll see a lot that you can mobilize your church on mobilizing prayer and pressure against the persecuted, the persecutors of the church like the Marxists in Zimbabwe and praying for support for the people who are suffering there. Hebrews 13.3 reads, Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Thank you for joining us tonight, dear hearers. This is Ryan Underwood in the studio with From the Frontline. God bless and good night.